0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Well, hello. Hello and welcome to the, what are we, January 17th, 2024 edition of Week to Week, the political roundtable of the Commonwealth Club World Affairs of California. I'm John Zipper, your host for Week to Week, and I'm the club's vice president of media and editorial. We have a lot of local, state and national news to talk about with our great panelists. So let's meet them. On the far end of the stage is Tim Anaya. He is the Vice President of Marketing and Communications at the Pacific Research Institute, and he's on X at Tim Anaya. Welcome back, Tim. Thank you for having me. In the middle is Melissa Kane. She's the host of the Get Out the Bet podcast. She's a political analyst and attorney, and she's on Twitter X, well, Twitter X, whatever they're calling it this week, as Constitution Mel. And next to me is Guy Marzorati. He's a correspondent for the California Politics and Government Desk at KQED News. You can find him on X at Guy Marzorati. Let's start tonight with Iowa. The caucus, for well, the Republican caucus took place this Monday. Of course, the Democratic caucus there has been... Is it taking place, or do they just move at a future it? Future date. <laughs> at a future date. At which point, you know, it'll all probably be over. But uh, to no one's surprise, Donald Trump won the uh, Republican caucus with a huge lead. Tim, let's start with you. What did you make of the result? What did you think about it?
2: Well, uh, it certainly—I mean, you can't look at the numbers and not say it was a blowout for Trump. I mean, it was. Even, you know, all the kind of spin beforehand. Will he break 50 percent? Well, who will come in second? The battle for second? Well, pretty much if you were going to plan it most in Trump's favor, well, that's what you got. That he beat 50 percent. And if you add in and should we say the last rights for our friend Vivek Ramaswamy? If you add him in, you got 57 percent for kind of Trump aligned candidates. Uh, And then probably the best outcome for him, you know, for all was, you know, DeSantis came in second with all the money he spent and his super PAC spent. Well, A, I would want a better return than 21 percent of the vote. Certainly, I I don't want to add up what is that per vote to get uh, to get all of that. But if you we so you didn't have to. We went through all the entrance polls, looked at all the data and if you look at where he was at in 2016, he improved in b- dramatically in basically every key category. And if you look at the people that uh, Haley needs to win to have any chance at all, she lost independence. She lost women. She lost college educated, I believe, as well. You know, that's that's pretty. She had, who's you know, left who's left. <laughs> right. So, um you know, for a DeSantis, where do you go from here? That's the big question. For a Haley, you couldn't have had a worse night. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get into New Hampshire a little later, but this was not... It was funny when she came out and said, New Hampshire tonight punched two tickets. Well, I guess not for the second place person, for the third place person got the other ticket. But... Uh, she's certainly, I guess, in steerage flying to New Hampshire with uh, a third place, uh, a third place finish. But yeah, I think it probably couldn't have been a better result for Trump. It was
1: literally the largest, uh, uh, what lead, largest uh, margin, I believe, that anyone had ever done in the Republican caucus in Iowa. That's right, Melissa. Your thoughts?
0: Well. So first of all, even though she came in third, um, DeSantis got – so Donald Trump got 20 delegates. um, DeSantis got nine delegates. Haley got eight delegates. So I mean – you're only technically one delegate down, even even if you uh, you did come in third place. But actually, I thought the, the the steep drop off in enthusiasm was something to potentially be concerned about because the people who show up at the caucus are your diehards, right? And even then, you had what a 40 percent. It went from 180 180,000 people in 2020 to 100,000 people this time. That's a huge drop um, among Iowans who are registered Republicans going out, and you know the snow. Uh, (laughs) it wasn't the snow it
1: was the wind chills and negative temperatures
0: yeah the frozen eyelashes and like very you know very sort of um you know grim uh you know setting so i mean that explains some of it of course but um but it it, in such a setting you would think it would be an even bigger blowout and i'm 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 not saying he had a bad night. Uh but I'm just saying uh, it, it was it was interesting to me that there wasn't more enthusiasm. And I just want to pause here for a second and talk about the caucus what what one is because we're going to get I want to get to this because we need to talk about Nevada, y'all. Feel like it's therapy. We need to talk about. It. <laughs> like yeah. this is going to be insane. Um but you know a caucus is not as different from a primary in that a caucus is Purely party run; it's not state run like here, where like a primary, where you go and you sort of go to your local. um, It's run by your local election board, and you go to your public library, you cast your vote. All of that sort of administration, it's done by the party. And generally speaking, you have to show up; it has to be a thing in person. This is why the cold was so horrible, because uh, you don't really. I think there were some exceptions if you've got a severe disability, things like that. But generally speaking, you can't absentee vote for these things. You have to be in person. You have to show up. You have to be a registered member of the Republican Party. So if you are not any of those things, um, you don't get to vote, which is why in a state even like Iowa, you had a a whole caucus that was just 100,000 people. And so these things are just sort of, you know, they tend to be a little hermetically sealed. They don't. And and as we know, and as you all have, many of you who have ever watched me up here before know that I have literally screamed from the stage, (laughs) Iowa never predicts who is actually going to win (laughs) the presidency. So I don't want to, Get too excited about, but caucuses can be a little distorting because they really are closed off and require people to show up at a particular time and do this thing. Um, and what we've seen um, since 2020 is the Republican Party reinstituting caucuses um, in places, in various places, and potentially for. To, to help Donald Trump. So we've got states going going back to it, like Nevada, I think Alaska, Utah. Um, so we definitely, you're going to see more. It used to be, back in my day, it was just the Iowa caucuses and I think like one other state. And it was just this adorable thing. Um, but now they're really trying to go back to it, pulling out of the primary process and keeping the delegate awards inside this caucus tent. And so, I don't want to read too much into Iowa because of, because it, it's a caucus and has this distortion effect that doesn't necessarily reflect having said that this is how they award delegates. And so 20 delegates is 20 delegates, however you get them. Um, but, um, but want to make sure we're clear about that as, as we're talking about the difference between that and like the New Hampshire primary where people can go and ask for a ballot. If you're an independent, you can ask for a Republican party ballot and it's all administered differently and has a, has a different voter profile.
3: I, I mean, I think even, caucus caveats aside, I do think the 50% threshold that Tim mentioned is incredibly important. When you think back to 2016, a lot of the conversation in the primary was Trump was winning these uh, state-by-state primaries under with under 50%. He was winning the plurality of the vote and getting kind of an at-large winning, winning these states that were giving out delegates um, you know, all in once. I think that the issue here is if he's getting 50% uh, of the vote in a in a caucus like this, you really lose the argument that, oh, you know, if he was just in a one-on-one race with one of these candidates, it would really change that dynamic. I think as he's getting above that threshold, you're really not looking at a situation where if suddenly the field is winning aw- winning out, uh, this changes the complexion of the race. I also felt like Iowa and what happened on Monday was really the final nail in the coffin for this electability argument for Trump. In, in the Republican primary, which I think if we were having this argument uh, 365 days ago, we'd really be looking at a candidate like Ron DeSantis making that electability argument. Trump has been incredibly popular among Republican voters for years. But in three out of the four elections since he became the face of the party, the party underperformed. Uh, and I think that was probably the strongest argument a candidate like DeSantis had going into this election. The problem was Candidates like DeSantis have spent years going along with this lie that Trump won the 2020 election. And it's very hard to go back to those same voters and make an argument that Trump uh, is unelectable when you've been kind of saying that he has been elected and, and uh, won the election in 2020. So I think you you saw a really late pivot by DeSantis into making those more clear attacks against Trump. Really, it took him until uh, kind of the closing weeks in Iowa and writ large, the Republican Party has set Trump up as as someone who was, um, you know, done wrong in 2020. It's hard. It's hard to then turn around and make that electability argument. And so as Trump goes into New Hampshire, he, you know, Vivek is out of the race that I think you can add six or seven percent that he was polling in Iowa, probably towards Trump. And the same could be said if DeSantis gets out of the race. It's not like his voters are more likely uh, to go into Trump's column than than Nikki Haley. And ultimately, you know, we look at some of the the uh, entrance polls in Iowa, you had over 60 percent of voters saying Trump is the most electable candidate in the field. So I think it's taken a year. But that breakdown of that argument that he's not electable, um, Republican voters don't believe that anymore.
2: To add to that point, you know, Nikki Haley's best selling point, and I would tattoo it on my forehead if I were her, I win the general election in a landslide. You look at every national poll, you look at every state battleground poll, Nikki Haley wins by double digits against Joe Biden. Well, now, if you look at and take national polls with a grain of salt at this point, but if you look at the national polls, Trump now is beating Biden in most of the recent national polls. And DeSantis is now beating Biden in most of the national polls. So it makes that electability argument that she has that's real – If you want to win in a landslide, vote for me. It makes it harder when multiple candidates are now narrowly beating the president in the national polls. Do you remember back in the 2000, not 2000, excuse me, the 1992
1: uh, presidential primaries on the Democratic side, Bill Clinton, was it New Hampshire or what state was it where he didn't come in first? He didn't come. I think he came in third, but he sold it as the comeback kid. I mean, it was. It was a great spin operation, right? It really kind of did that. Nikki Haley is currently in second in, in the New Hampshire polls that I've been seeing. Um, does she get a second and say, "Hey, that I'm I've got momentum," or because she's looking at a huge blowout in her home state of South Carolina? So, what 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 should we be looking for in New Hampshire, um, and how should we? Maybe. will that should we put more weight on that than we do a caucus because of the differences that Melissa was talking about that? Okay?
3: I mean, I think the problem is more states uh, look like Iowa than New Hampshire. When you're talking about the Republican primary field, the lack of a strong evangelical presence in New Hampshire, the uh, kind of influence that independent voters have in that primary is not something that you see across the board in most Republican primary states. So if Nikki Haley does well there, I'm not sure that sets her up to do well elsewhere in the primary calendar. Honestly, I think the greatest, you know, the place where Nikki Haley could have the most impact in this election is in November. A majority of the voters who cast a ballot for Nikki Haley on Monday said they would not support Trump in the general election. Now, what kind of signal does Haley send to those voters leading up to November? She herself said she would vote for Trump over Joe Biden. Is she out on the campaign trail, trying to prevent a a, a Trump election in the way that maybe someone like Chris Christie would be doing in the fall. I think that remains to be seen.
0: Well, remember, between, because I'm going to bring this back to Nevada, uh, (laughs) because between New Hampshire and South Carolina uh, is Nevada. Also, the Virgin Islands, just so you know. Uh, Can I go cover
1: that one? Yeah. And Michigan. (laughs) Yeah. You want the snow.
0: I just, as a side note, the people who are in like the, the Virgin Islands and Northern Mariana Islands, uh, they, and the Puerto Rico, like they're the best people at the convention. They're so excited. They're my favorite people at, at a, at a, at a Republican committee. Conven- well, actually at any convention, because they don't get to vote in the, in the general, the convention is, is sort of, it's sort of as close as they get. And they're always very, um, very Guam, cool. Where
2: America's day begins.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. And they have the, they're wearing sort of, anyway, they're <laughs> great. Uh, Anyway, I digress. So Nevada. Um, so Nevada, a couple of years ago, the governor signs a bill that requires parties to have a primary. And you can correct me if I'm wrong here. And I need yep. to hear it, Tim. Uh, and the Republican Party, though, said we do not wish to have a primary. We should have a caucus. There's a lawsuit that goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the way it has played out. And it The story just gets a little weirder every turn you take. So there is going to be a Republican primary on February 6th. It is a, an advisory primary, meaning it doesn't actually bind anyone or anything, and it doesn't get you any delegates if you win. Two days later, on February 8th, there will be a caucus, and that's where the real stuff is supposed to happen, and that's where the delegates uh, the delegates get awarded. Um, if you are on the primary ballot, according to the party, if you're on the primary ballot, you cannot be on the caucus ballot. So, yeah, bananas, right? You guys... Mark your calendars. This is going to get fun. So, of course, the Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, they're on the caucus ballot because that's the one that matters and gets you delegates. But Nikki Haley has stayed on the primary ballot, and she's the only one you've ever heard of. I mean, there's like five other nuts on there, but there's she's the only one you ever heard of who's on the Republican primary ballot and so it goes to this point though of like in terms of how do you tell the story about like i've got momentum i've um you know i've won the republican primary in nevada you know and uh and you can say that it won't actually you know sort of mean anything from a delegate perspective but there's this Real gamble there um, on her part to see what kind of momentum she can get going before South Carolina, which I will just before I end my TED talk, say this. South Carolina is a winner take all state, meaning whoever gets the most votes gets all the delegates. It ain't like Iowa where like Trump got 20 and DeSantis got nine. and hit, None of that. If you win in any of the seven congressional districts, you get all the delegates. If you win statewide, you get all the delegates. So this is a very Trump-friendly <laughs> because because he he's likely to get a, you know maybe the the most ballot, the most votes um, a very pro Trump situation where he can come out of this with fifty ballots even if he gets like thirty nine percent of the vote whatever whatever the most is he gets all of them and so that South Carolina thing right around the corner is going to be a a very difficult one for Haley. Um, But to back up, between February 6th and February 8th, (laughs) things are going to get way more interesting in this race because you're going to have the difference between the primary and the Republican caucus and kind of what the Haley campaign can make of that.
2: But we do volunteer to set up shop at the Bellagio on February 6th and 8th and be on, you know, in-person coverage of the Nevada caucuses. But you know, the um I think for Haley for New Hampshire, you gotta win. If you can't win in New Hampshire, which is the environment is the most favorable to you, but well, where are you gonna win? Yeah. You know, and right I looked today, the latest polls that came out today, one she's behind fourteen, the other one she's behind seventeen. Now, we'll see, and that was one of the problems of Monday night, is she didn't get the you know, during primetime splat during the election coverage. It was later in the evening and it it wasn't good news for her. So, I mean, she she missed out on, you know, had she come in second and been able to give a primetime speech, you know, everything would would be different. You look at South Carolina, I think she's behind like 26 or 28 points in South Carolina. Now, you would think, well, if ever there's a state where Nikki Haley would do well, California is it. This is where, you know, we'll put her over the top. The latest poll, UC Berkeley and L.A. Times came out this week. She's behind 66 to 11 percent in California. And California just changed the rules. So that would mean Trump would win all the delegates in California.
3: There is one quirk in New Hampshire, I'll say, that Democrats are We're given an opportunity to re-register and participate in the Republican primary. And there might have been more of an incentive this year than most to do that because Biden is not going to be on the ballot in New Hampshire. There was a reshuffling of the Democratic primary calendar. Biden wanted South Carolina to go first. New Hampshire uh, got in a protracted dispute with the party. And so I think some people have looked at that. Maybe if if there were enough Democrats who met the October deadline to re-register, maybe that's an area Nikki Haley can pick up on. But I think let's not get lost in the the weeds of New Hampshire. If your strategy to win a Republican primary is to win Democratic votes, that's not a strategy that's going to take you very far. And so I think regardless of how Nikki Haley does uh, next week, the lane that she has in this primary, which is to win over independents, people who will never uh, vote for Trump, and then a Democrat here or there, that's not a path to winning a Republican primary.
0: Certainly not as long as the DeSantis stays in the race. I mean, right. like, that's the big, I mean, it, it would really, I mean, if we're talking about what's the algebraic algorithm that could change what has been obviously the fate for a long time, um, is uh, is it would require Trump and one other candidate, essentially, to, to be in the race, to, to really try to tee that up. But as long as you got DeSantis and Haley splitting the not-Trump the not vote, um, again, I, there's Almost no, essentially no path.
1: Uh, I did see he's largely giving up on, he being Ron DeSantis, largely skipping New Hampshire. Um, but also his super PAC apparently is laying people off. friend of mine got laid off this morning. Sorry for your friend, but yes. do you have any inside scoop? Or is that,
2: that super PAC, is his campaign in trouble? I mean, usually kind of when you didn't do too well on the first campaign, then it becomes about money. Right. If he's got money, even if you're living off the land... You can go forward, but it's unclear how does he go after. I mean, there was 120 million dollars, I think, in that super PAC. They largely spent a lot of their money on the ground game operation, which I think now we've had multiple elections to show that isn't necessarily the best way to have a ground game if you're relying on a third party that you don't control the messaging and operation because legally you can't have anything to do if you're the candidate with a super PAC supporting you. Um, so I think that's the main question is, does he have money to move on? If he's basically withdrawing from New Hampshire, well, is he, you know, South Carolina is a more favorable state for him. But OK, he gets 14 percent of the vote in South Carolina. You know, you can't retreat all the way to the Florida primary. The where Erty Giuliani strategy. Yeah. Which, you know, that did not work well for him. That was going to be his first big tests back in 2008. So uh, I don't see how he goes on after the next 10 days. You know, donors generally don't like to put good money after bad. So each, each of oh, go ahead.
0: Well, he also um, so Florida votes in March, mm-hmm. like mid-March, uh, cause I think second week in March. Um, and uh, he needs to make a decision by then for sure, because if you lose your home state, uh your ability to sell yourself as an expert as you know what I mean like your your sort of post-election life as an ambassador or some a cabinet member something right at some point you, you you know he's not gonna get a real job right he, he's gonna he's looking for what's the next thing that ain't the presidency um, but your ability to sell yourself as somebody who's an authority is um, uh, and and who's got some kind of gravitas is really really diminished after if that were to go forward it's part of why for example you know kamala harris dropped out of the presidential race right before the california primary <laughs> because it did not look good right and you, should, you want you want to be able to preserve whatever you know sort of uh, you know gravitas you have um and so we he might stay in longer. I'm, he's still, he's already in longer than I thought he would be, but he might stay in longer than any of us think he should be. But uh, but he—but probably Florida around there early March, he'll have to really make a decision. His, his <laughs> prospects will dim dramatically if he does what the polls predict he will do, which is lose big in his own state. And, and two, if
2: 2028 20, is in his future, if he wants to run again, well, you can't be the biggest loser of all time. You've got to get out while you can sell a story and paint a narrative. And we fought a good fight and move on to another day. But, you know, there's always a hundred grand a pop speeches to give. And there's always, uh, you know, in Florida, you know, there could be a potential for him to run for the U.S. Senate someday. You know, he d- it's not like he doesn't have a future in Florida after this election. I think he's termed out. I don't I think he can have- run for a, a third term. But. Yeah, you really got to figure out what do you want to do in the future. And pretty much tonight, you got to figure that out. So March 5th, I believe, is the Super
1: Tuesday uh, primary batch of elections, including California's. By then, do you think Haley and uh, uh, DeSantis will still be in it? And if so, why? (laughs) I, I don't even mean that to be snarky. I just mean... Are they in it waiting for Trump to end up in jail and that they'll still be in the running? Or are they in it hoping to become vice president? You know, because Chris Christie was the only one out there saying, I'm in it to say that Donald Trump should not be president. And, you know, I'm in it for a different type of Republican Party. But, you know, DeSantis and, and Haley, you know, they both raised their hands and said they'd vote for Trump even if he were convicted. So uh, what do you think will, ha- will be this situation on the Republican side? We'll get to the Democrats in a bit but when uh super tuesday hits california, okay?
3: I mean, I th- I think the only reason they would be in it at that point is to stay in for Trump's uh legal jeopardy to play out. I don't think there there would be a delegate path for them uh at that point, but as you say there's a lot there could be a lot of uh other reasons to perhaps just keep yourself in it. Most well,
0: well, so remember, even if you drop out of the race, you can, you're can you still on the ballot, right? So Vivek Ramaswamy will still be on the ballot in the states for which he qualified. It's just that his campaign is suspended. By the way, the reason they suspend campaigns instead of just ending them uh, is because if you end it, then you have to pay back all your debt and they don't want to do that. So we're going to keep it open. <laughs> we're going to suspend it. Um, so he suspended his campaign. So he'll still be out there potentially getting more delegates, maybe one or two here or there by, you know, folks who are... Just, I don't know, out to have some fun. Um, but the thing to remember, so number one, if even if they do suspend their campaigns, they'll still be on ballots. They could still get delegates. The other thing to remember is that in, under Republican Party rules, if you earn delegates like Vivek's like three, I think that he just got from Iowa, and then you suspend your campaign or you otherwise drop out, you your delegates are free, right? They're open. And so now, who are these delegates? They're Vivek's friends, right? He submitted the list. So like they're his you know, his people. And, you know, you think they'll probably do what he asked them to do. So there is some currency there to get to, even if you're in a hopelessly losing situation, get some delegates, make, you know, sort of try to use them as uh, as bargaining chips (laughs) here or there to try to get things that you want because once you drop out, you can sort of do what you need to with them. You can tell them to vote for who you want them to vote for and, and et cetera. So if you see someone like DeSantis, even though he's turned dramatically against Trump, drop out and then Trump has his arm around him, this is why. <laughs> because he's now a big bag of delegates uh, <laughs> that, uh, that are always helpful. And so, um, so as you're seeing these maneuverings happening, remember, these are the kind of machinations that are happening in the background.
2: I think it's all of that and money, too. You know, do they have the money to limp on? Even if you're not can't afford TV ads and all that, it does cost money to charter a jet and hire your staff and pay for the staging and pay the caterer and all that. And, you know, rule number one, too, when you work in politics, make sure if you're a vendor, you get your bills paid before the candidate drops out. (laughs) You probably won't be paid after they uh, drop out if you have outstanding bills, I think. Uh, allegedly Newt Gingrich and Carly Fiorina still owe vendors uh, from their past uh, presidential campaigns. So that's a little pro tip for the folks uh, watching at home, interested in working in politics. But, you know, I do know Nikki Haley has a series of big fundraisers scheduled in California, I think, for the first week of February. I think she's come to San Francisco for one of those. So you could get your chance to... uh, to meet her in person if you write a big enough check. But uh, I think it depends on that. You know, is there the people supporting her, her super PAC? You know, there are, you know, she has wealthy people writing big checks for her. You know, do they continue to fund the effort? Yeah. And if not, you know, we may be have a pretty boring primary election night here in California. Okay. Uh, We've
1: mentioned Chris Christie a couple times. One of our audience
2: members asks
1: uh, basically, Will Christie, Chris? Well So, Chris Christie suspended his campaign, but he doesn't have any delegates, right? No. He didn't get anything. Okay. Will he have any role to play at the National Convention, do you think, that, that – I mean, I can't imagine Trump giving him st- stage time. Uh,
0: I don't know how he gets a ticket. Like, and I don't mean that in a nasty way. I mean, like, the people who are there are delegates, and then they're also sort of state and local officials and federal – officials who are part of the party christie doesn't hold donors he doesn't hold a current office and so it's unclear how um i mean i would love that (laughs) wouldn't you love to be on the floor of the republican convention here comes chris christie i mean wow uh that would be that would be cool but uh but i don't know that he um is is invited or we
3: go
2: i think the only way if he's a paid commentator for yeah, one ABC, of the networks.
3: ABC, I was going to say. ABC statistical...
2: would love to have him in there. Uh, I think that's the only way. And you watch, they'll jeer him from the, you know, because literally the, you know, the booths where they broadcast from are literally right off the convention floors, so you can hear. You'll be able to hear the jeering, and ABC, I'm sure, would love that for their coverage. It'll make it must see TV. Let me throw it.
1: So there's a rumor that uh, no labels is interested in Chris Christie. Any thoughts on either that specifically or no labels, which is positioning itself as the non-Republican, non-Democratic, supposedly centrist approach uh, to trying to find a what they think of as a unity candidate?
3: I mean i I think the issue with no labels is all along they've been uh teeing themselves up as the hypothetical third option to trump or biden the problem is when you actually put a candidate in that in those hypothetical shoes they become a lot less attractive and that goes for joe manchin or chris christie who's now had a few failed runs uh, at the presidency did not leave the governorship uh, in new jersey on good terms with the voters um so you know i think that ultimately becomes a challenge now it's clearly something the Biden campaign is going to be worried about, right? Like that, you know, they they view a third party challenge like that as taking away from their vote share in November, but I don't think Chris Christie is the uh, silver bullet for no labels.
1: Melissa, you've voiced your uh, Well, you, satisfaction know, you know, I'm not a fan system. of the
0: two-party system generally, but uh but I think no labels has said they're not going to be fielding a candidate in 2024. Oh, really? I think they announced right. that um, that they were not going to do that. So even though they might be interested and um maybe for 2028 or something going forward, I think um my understanding is that they're they're not actually going to to try to, to attempt one at this point.
2: There is money behind it. My my old boss from the Schwarzenegger years, Rob Stutzman, just announced he's going to work for a. I believe it's a super PAC that's kind of a super PAC and waiting to support a potential no labels candidate. Uh, I looked at the in the ABC Ipsos poll that came out recently. You know, there's a high percentage. I think it's something like thirty seven or thirty eight percent said they would seriously consider a no labels type candidate, including a lot of the constituencies Biden desperately needs to win, like moderate women, um, female independent voters. I believe it was something like 51 or 52 percent of female independent voters said they would strongly consider voting for a no labels candidate. Um, That's why you see Speaker Pelosi and others on down are really throwing cold water on this effort, because You know, Joe Biden has a lot of weaknesses, but Joe Biden in a vacuum having a lot of weaknesses, it's very different when it's a binary choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And when it's a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump and a third person, Joe Biden doesn't win that election and probably by a lot, Donald Trump probably wins that election pretty handily. So if the goal of no labels is we do not want to reelect Donald Trump, well, it sort of makes you wonder Well, why are you still going on with this effort? Because that's exactly what you're doing, especially if you actually go. And whether it's no labels or whether it's, you know, some other independent effort, whether you actually get a candidate on the ballot.
3: Right. I mean, if the theory is that Trump's uh, kind of ceiling on popular uh, vote approval is 47 percent, which it's kind of uh, uh, been steady given all that's happened since he arrived on the scene, that 47% is is a losing proposition in a one-on-one matchup, but with the third-party candidate, that suddenly – now you're back in Jill Stein territory. Yeah.
1: Well, you're, you're, There's a the reason we had two terms of Bill Clinton, and both times it was uh, Ross Perot who arguably put him into office. Um, like I said, arguably. I might not be right. Um, someone asks – Democrats, why can't they come up with better candidates? Should they dump Biden? I want to talk about California politics, of course, tonight. But before we turn to the the state, let's talk a bit more specifically about the Democrats. Um, President Biden is getting some heat from his left flank. Uh, The Israel-Hamas fight uh, has gotten him a lot of criticism, and at least in some polls— you know, it's taken a real hit from uh, or for him from young voters, young Democrats in particular. Um, any thoughts on you know his very bad poll ratings? Um, and you know, kind of is he is he weak even among Democrats, or is this something that again, when we get to a binary choice, okay, I might not be a, a fan, but you know, people prefer him. Democrats will prefer him to uh, Donald Trump. Hmm. Any thoughts?
3: I mean, you know, I do think the the war in Gaza uh, is a potential liability, specifically if you break down to, you know, subgroups of young voters in states like Michigan, where there's uh, larger Arab American populations and just the toll of the split screen images you see of Biden officials out there every day saying everything is being done to limit civilian casualties on a split screen with everything that we're actually seeing uh, take place in Gaza. And and look, there's it goes beyond that. I mean, I think we're seeing this with the immigration debate in the House now. Vulnerabilities that Democrats have on that issue. There was a poll out today. Cal, uh, over sixty percent of California voters say that the border is not secure and and would support policies like changes to asylum, more uh, enforcement at the border. When that's you know that statement, the border is not secure. You're not going to see an elected Democrat making that statement. Um, So I I think those are issues in which Biden has vulnerability uh, among progressives. But to your point, does that all change when it's when it's down to two candidates and suddenly people feel like, uh, you know, we have to get to the polls to prevent another Trump presidency? I think that's the question. That's, That's what's keeping Democrats up at night. Melissa.
0: Joe Biden, whatever numbers he's got, he are showing that he wins, apparently, because he has done nothing to address the immigration crisis he has done really you know he knows about the presumably he knows about these weaknesses and does not care so whatever numbers he has shows that he doesn't actually have to do anything because if they did then presumably he would do things but but we just haven't seen it so i just i have to assume that the very smart well-paid people around him think the young people aren't going to vote anyway right um maybe maybe not right uh were these really people who were going to come out, maybe, um, but you know what I mean, like he's he's clearly whoever these constituencies are, he's gambling it seems that immigration is not a big enough issue to keep voters from voting for him, and that the folks maybe who are turned off by his approach to uh the Gaza situation you know aren't necessarily his sort of core voters or folks he was going to rely on anyway to win. I mean that's the only thing I could guess because he's he's really not addressing any of these issues.
2: And the age strength issue, you know, 28% in that ABC Ipsos poll said he had the health and the vigor and the strength to be president. I don't know how you overcome that. But it's one of those things where you always say your campaign team, and we can say this for Nikki Haley, for DeSantis, you have a theory of the race and you put forward what you think. We think this is how the dominoes are going to fall. And that's what we're doing. And clearly, his team has a theory of the race. And they think that come November, really, as best as I can tell, they think the binary choice is enough to get them over the line. But as we're seeing, because Biden is showing so much weakness in so many areas among the people he needs to get out and vote to reelect him, that is not enough. And it's a real possibility. You know, we've seen polling within the last month. Donald Trump could win again. He could win Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. He's up eight points in Georgia. Georgia, the key state of all of last time we're still arguing about, right? That, to me, if that doesn't set out the alarm bells of maybe we need to rethink our strategy, I don't know what does. New York Magazine had a cover story a couple of weeks ago,
1: and it was about this, like, strange, chill atmosphere of the Biden campaign. And, it, you know, they were interviewing people both within the campaign as well as, excuse me, Democrats outside of the the current campaign, including Obama uh, campaign veterans who are just kind of like, why aren't you worried in there? You know, why? And they're like, hey, we've, basically what you said, it's like, well, we're the way we're turning these numbers, you know, these people weren't going to vote for us anyway. This isn't this. Um, I want to get back to immigration, which has come up a couple of times now. I live in uh, Chicago now, as as some of you already know, and uh, Chicago is one of those Democratic-run sanctuary cities that uh, Texas's governor has been busing and now flying uh, migrants to. And there are tens of thousands who have been uh, sent to Chicago. And I've heard more than a few people who would, you know, would probably consider themselves very pro-immigrant in general Say, um, you know, now these northern democratic run states and cities are understanding what Florida and Texas and, and some of these other states have to do. You've got people on your border in your state and suddenly you have to do something with them. And so now you have, you know, Eric Adams and and uh, uh, Governor uh, Pritzker from Illinois and and Chicago's mayor all saying, hey, Joe Biden, you know, your administration, do something. And um, they're not getting a very good response. They're they're saying they're not getting any response. Um, What what uh, potential do you think this has to be an issue in the campaign, whether or not Biden and his team want to address it?
3: I mean, it's clearly already an issue in the campaign. Um, I think to your point about these, you know, Democratic mayors in Democratic cities, the my you know the the flights the busing of migrants from the border I don't you know that's that, to many people that was in, incredibly harsh and I don't think necessarily by itself uh, is a, is a winning strategy but in terms of internal pressure you saw these mayors making direct appeals to the Biden administration we need help I mean you look at the you know shelter situation in a city like New York and it's not easy look the asylum system clearly there are issues uh happening on the southern border at the same time the asylum system is what makes america different than so many countries on earth that are asking migrants you know what are your job prospects and what are your you know educational prospects before you can come to our country it's kind of foundational in many ways uh to our country and so it's it's a really difficult issue to reform and i think that's what you're seeing congress struggle with now as far as an election issue i do think this will be an interesting focal point in watching where the Latino vote goes uh, in 2024, because you saw Trump's campaign make inroads with Latino voters uh, in 2020. Putting aside Florida and some of you know, the uh, Cuban-American voters, Venezuelan-American voters there, I do think a, a big piece of that in 2020 was the issue environment. Immigration was such a big deal in 2016. It was so central uh, to the debate around Donald Trump. That was not the case in 2020. People were talking about COVID and the economy. And I do think the suppression of that issue allowed Trump to make appeals uh, to Latino voters. Maybe what Biden and Democrats are thinking is if we can address immigration early enough in this campaign, uh, in terms of asylum, in terms of border security, maybe then the attention turns back to Trump and the comments that he's making on a mass deportation. That's what he promised on Monday night. And maybe that once again creates an issue environment that will bring more Latino voters back.
1: Let me push. Let me Let me push back on that a little bit first. And that is the the assumption that the Latino vote is in favor of loose immigration laws. I mean, there, there's I and the New York magazine. I should be selling subscriptions. Jonathan Chait did an article recently, I think in the current issue, talking about how a lot of the minority groups that Democrats have been relying on and assuming were part of the progressive wing of the party are actually much more moderate than white Democrats, white liberals. And and also in Chicago, the groups who have been protesting the migrants, they're not white. Yeah, they're no, not I, white I, ethics. They're, they're, they're black and they're brown people who are saying, wait a minute, you're now using my community center to house these people. You're not using my church. My, and it's like we're already underserved in in, in city services. So.
3: Totally. I think when taking it away from the policy discussion, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think you are seeing growing uh percentages of, of people across all ethnic and racial groups saying, you know, border security yeah. is an issue. When immigration pivots back to an identity issue about feeling like, you know, candidate XYZ is, is uh, targeting my community. You saw that in 2016. You saw that with Prop 187 in California, where it was uh, viewed as kind of a targeting one group. I think that inflames identity and therefore makes that identity an issue for voters to the ballot.
0: But the thing is, though, I mean, your analysis depends on the Biden administration doing something uh, and they are not and they have not so i don't know if that's the uh, the october surprise is like an actual thing <laughs> yeah. that we're going to do to 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 help this situation but they've done jack so far and it's baffling in this most recent poll which is really fascinating this berkeley igs poll Um, there is a, so it's like 60% or so say immigration is a serious problem. This is, you know, Californians, you know, um, and, but if you look closer and I know you did too, um, you can see there's a split between the Democrats, right? There's about 45% um, of Democrats who think it's a big problem, and like 45% who don't. And then if you go down even further on the page, they break it out in terms of race and there are not substantial differences between the races here. It is whatever this sort of number is is the number give or take all the way down. And so you actually don't see black folks and and Hispanic folks with you know a a, a different a fundamentally different view from um, from white respondents and Asian respondents you know in this poll. And I thought that was really interesting that everyone sort of. Um, that people are lining up that way, so it's becoming I mean if they want to really do this this thing that you're suggesting, and, and they might um, then you know they really do have um, to sort of do something to uh, to put a wedge in there because right now there seems like a a, a solid block of, of of folks who are sort of for it and against it, and they look very similar
2: Tim, I think voters in general, whatever your background, we don't like to see chaos. And that's basically what you're seeing on TV every day, or you live in a community where you're seeing it and experiencing it every day. And so when you see the Biden administration's response, even it it isn't even there's nothing to see here. It's basically radio silence. You know, we read in the tea leaves in some of the congressional discussions right now about the budget and, and different funding priorities. Well, maybe that'll be on the table. But do you have any faith that all these folks, when... This issue has eluded us for decades. Do you have any faith that these folks are going to get in a room and figure it out? Well, no, and especially not in a week or two. Um, The other thing, too, is what they are capable of is they could throw a lot of money at it. But when you're talking about Chicago and the big cities and when you're talking about the border communities, yes, it's money, but it's also we need to build new facilities We might need to authorize new asylum judges and nominate them and get them confirmed. We may need to build more wall. We may need to hire more border agents. Well, you have to recruit them and train them and do all of that. You know, it's not whatever, you know, should something happen in Washington and they make a deal on something, it's not really going to affect what's happening now. And that's where it's kind of up to Biden to come up with something because the people in the cities, the people on the border, some of those, well, we don't know where those folks went. Some of them we know, some we don't. And so that's the question is, what are you going to do for the people that are here? And that's an executive action enforcement issue. And it's clear they don't want to deal with that at all. Hot potato, hot potato. Okay,
1: let's move on to California. Uh, California has long been known as the bluest of blue states, but we're in the red, at least in our budget. Uh, we have an expected deficit. I've seen everything between 38 and $68 billion, uh, and state leaders are scrambling to plug that hole. Um, last year, California had nearly $80 billion in surplus, and that was uh, after a previous year when they had $72 billion in surplus. Um Guy, I mean, Governor Newsom has laid out his plans, I guess, for how to address it. What do you, what do we know about it, and what are we hearing in reaction to it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you, heard, you saw Newsom lay out his budget uh, in a typically long-winded uh, press conference, the, and. You kind of hear you when you're watching this in Sacramento, you kind of see this routine uh, go through cycles every year. You're always hearing governors talk about the volatility of California's tax system, where we are very reliant on high income earners uh, and the capital gains tax, which really drives whether we're in a massive surplus, as we were two years ago, uh, or in these budget deficits that we've had uh, for the last two years. The issue is watching as, as a reporter every year. Nothing changes about it. You hear governors you know uh, just talk about how volatile this is, how we 're seeing these wild swings in revenue, but you don 't see much change in how Californians are actually taxed and in fact, when you see surpluses, I think a lot of progressives cheer that as uh, you know a success story for the way in which our progressive tax system is set up so there are not at least at this point, any fundamental changes that are going to prevent us kind of from going on this wild roller coaster. I think one place that Newsom has suggested is making it uh, easier for the state to put more money in the rainy day fund. Uh, Right now it's capped at about 10% of our general fund That could possibly be a place to look uh, in years ahead, being able to store more of that money, because what the state ran into a couple years ago was they simply couldn't put any more money into reserves. They ultimately sent out checks (laughs) at a time when inflation was just starting to pick up. So that could be maybe a place to look uh, for some structural changes. But, you know, outside of that, I think you're just going to continue to kind of see this up and down uh, in our state budget process.
1: If only our governors were in a position of power to affect our taxation
2: policies. Tim, any thoughts? Well, I thought the most interesting takeaway from the budget announcement, and it was, I think, 108 minutes, which is short. One for of the,
3: the shorter ones.
2: Yeah, <laughs> uh, He's gone over two and a half hours and, and, and passed. and it's him. It's not him and the director of finance. It's him going for two and a half hours. And then the director of finance gets to come on. Um, Who would have thought the lead story from the budget announcement would be the governor picking a fight with the legislative analyst and the legislative analyst. For those of you who aren't familiar, it's kind of the gold standard, nonpartisan, independent uh, fiscal analysts. They work for the legislature technically, but they um, they're the ones that their analysis on. Where's the state economy? What's our tax revenue? What's our budget picture? Uh, It's pretty much the gold standard. And they had forecast in November that the state had a $68 billion deficit. And Newsom came out and said, no, 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 that's wrong. I say we have a $37.8 billion deficit. Now you're sitting at home wondering, well, how do we have such a big difference? Now, a governor is entitled to his own economists and people at the Department of Finance. He can make sense of the budget, whatever he wants. Now, I'm going to be maybe crassly political for one moment. Go for it. Please indulge me. I feel like, as Governor Newsom has been known to perhaps have kind of a mental checklist of accomplishments he'd like to tick boxes on for whatever future ambitions he has that he denies he has any of them. What? My guess is he, pro- it, you know, it kind of went down, you know, the worst deficit in California history was $42 billion in 2008, nine, when I was working in the assembly and it was much worse than because the general fund was a lot smaller then, so it was a huge, a huge part of, of the budget. My guess is the word probably went out. We are not going to have the worst deficit in state history <laughs> on my watch. So make up a number, whatever it is, that's fine. I'll go out and sell it. Uh, And that's where I think we came up with 37.8. Interestingly, a few days after that, the legislative analysts came out with their initial view of the budget. And they said, now they can't come out and say, well, the governor made up some numbers and that is not. So what we're doing, they said in about as far as they could say publicly, the governor was, quote, on the outer edge of the overly optimistic revenue projections that we might make. And they pegged the deficit at about fifty-eight billion dollars. So it's pretty whatever whoever you believe on the deficit figure, it's pretty bad. Now, what does Newsom propose to that thirty-seven point eight billion? It's about eight billion in cuts. The rest are kind of the uh, you know fund shifts and delays and gimmicks that not just him, every governor in in you know in their shoes use these. So it sort of begs the question. You know, does this set us up going forward if, you know, historically, when we have the valleys, our budget problems are multi-year problems and it's pretty much rule of thumb. The more cuts you make on the front end, the better we do overall. And so if we're kind of playing a little loosey-goosey with how big is the deficit and, Tempering some of the solutions, you know, are we setting us up for more budget pain next year and in the future? Um, a point on the um, the rainy day fund reserve, hundred percent right. You know, that was a thing when I worked in the legislature, my old boss, Connie Conway, that was one of her main accomplishments. That was always a priority of fiscal conservatives to have a real rainy day fund that you could save. And now we have the max. It's a little under twenty four billion dollars. You're limited in how much money you can take out of it each year um, when the governor hasn't declared a fiscal emergency. He's I don't think he has technically done it yet. So he's going to wait. He's going to wait until he yeah. Uh, but so he proposes to take out about 11 billion dollars in there. So that's appropriate. You know, if ever there's the year for it, this is the year. But, yeah, that would go a long way, uh, you know, in addition to we need to get serious about kind of can we afford this level of spending going forward? We need to save more money for years like this.
3: But your point, it doesn't it, the feeling in Sacramento has not been that the sky is falling over this budget, which sounds crazy given that we're talking about upwards of $40 billion. Yes. Um, But there is the, you know, the Sacramento accounting that's going to happen, the moving uh, money around in the budget. I think the cuts largely, I think Newsom targeted a lot of climate programs because he's figuring there's going to be federal investments in a lot of places like electric vehicle chargers uh, and the like. But I I don't have the feeling that this is going to be driving a lot of the debate and conversation in Sacramento this year. I think Criminal justice reform and public safety is going to get a lot of that. Um, but, it, you know, it, it definitely was uh, the, to see those numbers on the page. And for and Newsom also, I mean, he really gave it to the uh, Capitol Press Corps oh, yes. last week about, you know, how often we had recited the LAO's estimate. I had to say they're all estimates. I mean, the state last year uh, ultimately passed a budget when they didn't know how much tax revenue was coming in because tax returns got delayed until November. So they were basically flying blind. Um, and found out basically this fall how uh, behind we were uh, in in accounting. So it's all a game of estimates. And and to Tim's point, governors can manipulate the, uh, you know, uh, projections as they see fit. Jerry Brown was notorious for, you know, underestimating the potential revenue to try to hold off the legislature on spending. So there's a lot of leeway.
0: I love that the governor was like, why would you trust the LAO governor, <laughs> yes. over me, yeah. a career politician? <laughs> I just don't understand.
3: Yeah. Yes.
0: Trust me. Remember, when he was mayor at one time, he he gave a four-hour State of the City address. I don't know if y'all remember this. The Matrix
3: was, of Accountability? Yes.
0: He had the binder that was the Matrix of Accountability. And if you were reported and you went to his office, he was dick, you know, and start showing you charts. This is what he does. He Fire hoses you, and it's yes. just as useless as if he'd said nothing because, you know, four hours and you're just like, I'm, I have no idea what I just heard. But this is what he does. Like, the, the bigger the deficit, the longer he talks.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and like... the more fired up he gets. He, he literally said, quote, to the reporters as if they work for him, you know, <laughs> it was like a teacher lecturing their students, you need to write the budget as a story of resiliency. Okay. <laughs> We'll see how that goes, Governor.
0: Well, and I just don't know if this is the right time to be rolling out what is it, the extended free health care for yes. undocumented folks. And, and then we're going to cut. We're not going to give certain minimum wage increases to or certain wage increases to healthcare workers. But we're going to stick by this other thing. Like it's just there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, maybe above my pay grade, how that is a good sort of
2: system. (laughs) And those are thorny issues, by the way, the things, you know, there's a lot of new spending that hasn't happened yet. It's supposed to happen this year. Some of the spending, like increasing the eligibility for healthcare for the undocumented, he said publicly we're committed to that. That's about a $4 billion uh, piece of the budget. But this, um, as Melissa mentioned, there's a proposal enacted last year It was to stave off a ballot measure uh, to have a minimum wage increase for certain healthcare workers that's a huge that's bit of the budget and it has been scored as it's billions and billions annually after it was signed that's going to take every ounce of negotiating skill he has to get that squared away because legislators aren't going to want to touch that with a 10 foot pole and annoy their uh union allies who okay. champion that strongly
1: okay briefly before we get to the news quiz um, let's check in on the state race for the next U.S. senator. Um, what's happening? What's the latest? Any movement?
3: Well, we're going to see a debate in a couple of weeks. January twenty second, I think, is the first time uh, the leading four candidates are going to get on the stage. You know, I've felt like Steve Garvey has, uh, you know, launched his campaign. At this point, probably the leading Republican in the race, former uh, baseball star from the 70s and 80s. You know, I'm really curious to see if he can get into the top two. I think the path is there for him from a math point of view. When you still have roughly a quarter of voters um, registered as Republican, there's been a lot of attention on a potential Democrat versus Democrat matchup among, you know, Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, uh, perhaps even Barbara Lee. Um, but I think we're kind of replaying the 2018 governor's race again, where we had so much attention on potential Newsom-Viragoza general election, and then all of a sudden it was like oh, John Cox, who's he? Now he's in the general election. I think that that's kind of the path for Steve Garvey. He hasn't helped himself that much. I mean, he's basically been under a rock since he launched his campaign, and he's really testing uh, the limits of of announcing and then you know popping up again in January. We'll see how that goes. Barbara Lee, you know, she's really tied her campaign at this point to being the strongest voice for a ceasefire in Gaza. She was the only vote in Congress against uh, the authorization after 9-11 to go into Afghanistan. That's really been her calling card in Congress as a voice for peace. We'll see if, you know, I, I don't think the March electorate is great for for progressives. Um, but I think that'll be the question to watch. How how much can Garvey eat into, uh, you know, the Democratic Lead and and ultimately get into the top two.
0: Well, and how much? If you're Adam Schiff, who has been ahead in basically every poll, um, often within the margin of error, so not you know like dramatically ahead, but he's been ahead. If you're Adam Schiff, do you want to go against Garvey or do you want to go against Katie Porter? Um, Because if you want to go against Garvey, you think you're better off in a Republican versus D, and often you are in California. um, Do you help to elevate his profile? Do you go after him? I mean, when Newsom didn't want to face. Cox, he went after Cox. I mean, did he want to face Viragosa? Right, he went after Cox, and to try to sort of make sure to make sure the the electorate understood um, that Cox was uh, had a high profile, had a higher profile than he necessarily had. In you know, even he was a lovely man, but uh, but you sort of. Helped him get more popular by attacking him, uh, and so do you know if that's the kind of thing you see. And then if you're a, a shift supporter, do you sort of funnel money to the Garvey to an IE for Garvey to to make sure that's who you're against instead of this, um, you know. D on D fight um, between Schiff and Katie Porter. So that's kind of what you see, like how 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 do these candidates want this to shape up? And they and their supporters will sort of will will help to to make that happen. And so if you see a lot of Adam Schiff, if you see in this debate, Adam Schiff going after Garvey, then that's your answer.
3: Well, I think also if if you gave truth serum to Democratic operatives in Washington, they'd be totally fine with Steve Garvey making it into the general election. That's a lot of money that a Porter versus Schiff race would have to draw in from Democrats fundraisers, that if you get Schiff and Garvey in the general election, it's like they don't have to worry about it.
2: OK, last word, Tim. Well, all I need to know is that he was a dodger. But, that,
0: that's the ad. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, but you're exactly right. I mean, that's if you're Schiff, that's the matchup you want in the fall because you've now become a U.S. Senator, if that happens. Um, and he doesn't need to have a super PAC do it. Man's got thirty five million dollars on the bank. He can fund his own ads to end. You know, the Garvey campaign has been pretty much a non-existent campaign. The coverage you read of it is, where is he? Where are they hiding? He doesn't really have a strong campaign team. It's unclear if he's raised any money. It's unclear, does he have enough wealth to put into any kind of self-funding? But like when we were talking about Iowa, it's pure math. If Republicans figure out Garvey is the lone Republican, well, there's enough in a March electorate when there's not really much for Democrats to come out to vote for that he can make the top two. OK,
1: listen, sure thank a, you all a, for a being here. We've Come to I the know. end of our program. I want to thank our great panel, Di Marzerotti, Melissa Kane, and Tim Anaya. Thanks, all of you, for coming out tonight and everyone watching and listening online. Have a great week. Stay safe and healthy. Whoever wins this Saturday is great as long as they fly back to Green Bay. <laughs>